From McMinnville, Oregon, this is Crisscrossing Science, the podcast that smells as good as it sounds. I'm Michael Crosser. Of course you know Chad Tilburg. And today's title is How COVID Stole Our Sense of Smell. Hey, Chad. Hey, Mike. So we're talking about COVID today. Okay. And yeah, I know from experience that I lost my sense of smell a little bit, but my wife, she had no taste for several weeks and no sense of smell. Yeah. I remember a couple of years ago when the virus was first exploding onto the scene, hearing these reports coming out and just thinking, what? Yeah. But, you know, it's a widespread enough phenomenon and you've experienced it yourself and it, it tends to be a, a general kind of indicator that what you've got is is COVID-19. And so it'd be really interesting to know why it is that that happens, because it seems like a really odd symptom. It seems unrelated. Yeah. But well, we're in luck today, Chad. Yes. We have a special guest star. Yes, we do. One of our colleagues from Linfield University has agreed to join us. I'm happy to welcome Dr. Sarah Costi. She's in our health, human performance, and athletics department here on campus. And I've overlapped many a meeting with uh, <laughs> Sarah. <laughs> so thanks for joining us today, Sarah. Well, thank you so much for inviting me to be here today. I'm excited to kind of talk a little bit about our sense of smell. I teach this section in our fundamentals of neuroscience class. So, yeah. And and I think that's really interesting that initially with COVID, the loss of smell and taste turned out to be one of the ways that COVID was diagnosed before mm-hmm. we had all the medical means of saying, do you have COVID or not? Um, one way that we could tell was this just a common cold or do you perhaps have COVID? The loss of taste and smell was a sign that, hey, this is COVID because that doesn't tend to happen with a common cold. And really a high percentage of people lose their sense of smell and taste when they are infected with the virus that we know is COVID. So it's, you know, of great interest to figure out why is that happening? And in some ways it was of great concern because we know that our sense of smell and taste and our perception of those things rely on the brain. So are we facing a brain disease? Is this virus affecting functioning of our brain? So that was, you know, kind of scary in some ways. So initially you might think, and all of us have had a common cold and we get a lot of mucus and secretions and that can deter our sense of smell. And Mm -hmm. so initially we kind of thought, well, maybe it's just this buildup of mucus and we're just not able to smell. But unfortunately, what tends to happen with this disease is that sure, you might have a cold, but then even after those symptoms of a cold have resolved, there's still the lack of smell. So there's no mucus in the nasal cavity, but we are still not smelling well. And oftentimes the loss of smell can happen days after the infection seems to have passed. And then it can last up to four to six weeks. Most people get recovery. I guess there's about 10% of people that still have dysfunction of this sense of smell. Those kinds of, I guess, symptoms and timelines would, I think, start to freak you out a little bit. You start to wonder about like permanent damage. Correct. Right. So thankfully people jumped right on this and, and started, you know, doing some research to, to figure out what's going on here. Cool. So maybe a good place to start. Should we kind of remind ourselves just 
some of the basics about COVID first. Would you want to do that, Chad? Oh, sure, I could. Can yeah. you? So COVID-19 is disease that is caused by this particular SARS-CoV-2 virus. That's the disease that broke onto the scene in uh, early 2020. And oh, by yeah. now, we've... I remember that now. Yeah. Do you? Do you remember? Can you remember yeah. that far back? I think that yeah. happened. Yeah. Yeah. That. Uh, yeah. Who? Who's to say? And by now, I'm sure we've all seen that iconic picture. It looks sort of like a grainy ball with a bunch of little blebby spike proteins coming off of it. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that functionally, those little spikes coming off the edge of the virus itself are critical to how the virus completes its life cycle because those spike proteins actually have a very specific region that allows the virus to actually grab onto a receptor on the surface of certain cells in our bodies. And so functionally, those spike proteins are really important. And then that allows it to gain entry into certain cells in our respiratory system. Once inside, it's a virus. And so it's going to do what viruses do, which is replicate a whole bunch of copies of itself for building more viral proteins. Okay. And so then those get assembled and then released into the infected host. And so when it's released, it's killing those cells? Yeah, I think those cells lice and die. So those that particular cell that gets infected then dies. Mm -hmm. And so could we get back to the spike protein part? So it's not just mm -hmm. that these are like weapons that they can just like puncture a hole and <laughs> right. They're actually it's, it's doing some chemical something, right? It's it's an actual binding. That's right. So our cells are covered with receptors and it's a major way that our cells communicate with what's going on outside their plasma membrane. And there is a particular kind of receptor in cells that make up our respiratory system that those spike proteins have a region that binds onto. And so okay. they don't bind to all of our cells equally within our body, right? So that what that means is that not all of the cells in our body can be infected. It's just a very specific subset that have this particular receptor. So Sarah, is that true then that some of our cells have particular receptors and so then a virus or something will only be attacking like certain cells. So right. what are some examples of that, for instance? So for instance, we know that COVID is a respiratory disease. And so mm -hmm. we know that epithelial cells or cells within the respiratory tract have these receptors for the spike protein. And so COVID can enter those cells. And that's why we get the big respiratory disease process that occurs. For instance, like our stomach, it's not a stomach disease then. So like the receptors in your stomach or other parts of your body then are not don't have the same receptors. So it's because they're not the same receptors. Almost any disease is like targeted to our gut or our throat or our lungs or something like that. Yes. Yes. Okay. Well, yeah. So it's sort of like if different rooms in your house had uh, different different locks on all the different doors, you mm. know, one key might get you into one part of the house, but not other parts of the house. Okay. Yeah. So, and so that's a little bit of the background on how coronaviruses function, how they target different parts of the body. And since we have this very weird symptom of losing our sense of smell, maybe we should spend a little bit of time talking about how that works. And maybe we can put the two together and see how one affects the other. So can you fill us in on 
on some of what goes on? How do we smell? So with the nasal cavity, maybe it would help if I, you know, kind of explain a little bit about what we know about our sense of smell just in normal situations. Mm -hmm. So there are sensory receptor cells that are at the very roof of your nasal cavity. So I'm not quite sure if it's exactly where they're putting that Q-tip when they're trying to test you for COVID, but it Mm -hmm. is way up in the roof of your nasal cavity, there are sensory receptor cells. And these cells have other types of protein receptors on their surface that bind odorant molecules. So in the air that we breathe, there's all kinds of odorant molecules. And those substances gain entry into your nasal cavity through your nose, and they make their way up there to these sensory cells that again are up at the roof of the nasal cavity. And there, they're chemicals and they they bind to the receptors. And these little sensory receptors have finger-like extensions, or you might kind of think hair-like extensions. They're called cilia that have these little proteins and the odorant, the chemicals bind. And then these little cells send a signal to the brain. And that's hang on just a second. Yeah. So, so structurally that it's interesting. You describe their kind of three-dimensional cellular morphology, having these little finger-like projections. Do you suppose functionally, does that increase the surface area of the cell? Is that kind of the idea there? Yes, exactly. That increases the surface area. It also offers projections like down into the nasal cavity. So Mm -hmm. allowing for these odorants to find their receptors. And so then that stimulates, like I said, the brain Mm -hmm. for our sense of smell. And so a a few weeks ago, sorry, a a few weeks ago, we were talking about different sorts of receptor cells. And so if people have listened to the previous episode about electroreceptors, And I talked in there a little bit about how a neuron at rest actually has a charge on the membrane. And so what you're describing here then is a situation where when a a volatile molecule makes it up into your nose and binds to the surface, then that is what changes the charge on that membrane and kicks off what we call an action potential. And so this is that signal that neurons send. Right. That is exactly how that works. We'll send, send an action potential along this little cell. It's got axons, which is a part of the neuron that go through these tiny little holes in the skull. It's called the cribriform plate. And when you're looking at a skull, you can actually see the tiny little holes that these axons, these parts of the cell go through to reach the brain. Okay. Yeah. And then they will synapse in what's called the olfactory bulb, which will then send action potentials along that neuron to a region in our cortex. And that's where we get our sense of smell or perception of what that smelled like. There are also projections to other regions of the brain from that site that are involved in memory. So Mm -hmm. if you think about how you might smell something and it might remind you of a certain time in your life and bring back memories, or it can also um, go to other regions of the brain that are involved in emotion, like fear, anxiety, things like that. Interesting. Because for me, the smell of very ripe bananas reminds me of being a kid because my mom used to make banana bread a lot. There you go. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I've experienced that 
memory smell thing but sort of big picture is that we have these these cells that have finger-like projections they are grabbing a molecule or they're grabbing the smell and then that signal is going up to your brain and and triggering memories and doing all the things so yeah and allowing you to perceive what it is okay right so you can so identify it's really it and... important so you can identify it so we need to identify what we're smelling do we mm-hmm. want to eat that or not you know that's a <laughs> yeah. that's a big issue um our smell really helps with things like that okay so can you tell us a little bit about the, what are the smells that we're actually smelling? Is it a little bit of a rose that we're smelling or, or what's going on with that? So what's interesting about our sense of smell is that it isn't just one chemical that we are smelling. So for instance, when you peel an orange, mm-hmm. okay, and that's a pretty fragrant smell that you get, that's typically at least three different chemicals that are going mm-hmm. into your nasal cavity. They're binding to different receptors, those proteins on the cilia-like projections and sending action potentials to certain parts of the olfactory bulb which is then sending information to the cortex. Hmm. And then you go, oh, that's an orange. And maybe I like that smell or not. Hmm. And then sometimes it can be one chemical may be more prominent in certain you know, things that we smell. It's just a change in concentration in terms of how we perceive a particular smell. So there's a particular chemical that is in plants with white flowers, like jasmine, for instance, or a white orange blossom. And that chemical for many people smells pretty good. And that's at a a very low concentration in that flower. The chemical is at low concentrations in that flower. If we get really high concentrations of it, then we definitely do not like the smell of that. And there are high concentrations of that chemical in the feces. And that's what gives it this horrible smell. (laughs) So, so sometimes it can be due to the types of chemicals that are in a certain object, but it can also be concentration dependent mm-hmm. how much of the molecule there is or chemical there is. Yeah, but that so that is interesting that sometimes the faint smells can smell good to us. That also brought up a memory of mine of like driving around. My brother tells me not to talk about Kentucky as much, but I was in Kentucky when I would drive around and I would smell faint, very faint skunk smell. And I would be like, oh, that actually smells pretty good. But then when you get like a heavy dose of it, then you're like, oh, that's disgusting. But faint was kind of a sweet smell and, and not too bad. Hmm. So that's Kentucky. <laughs> that's Kentucky in a nutshell right there. A faint smell of skunk everywhere. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it also smells like dinner, right? Because you're, you're driving around, you're trying to find some roadkill. <laughs> I see. I see. That is not true. That Rob, Rob, that's not true. We never did that. You know that. We never did that. Okay. Yeah, so that definitely seems like the brain must be kind of sussing out how much stimulus of that particular receptor is coming in. Actually, this is related to a question I maybe should have asked earlier. Do individual olfactory receptor neurons respond to just a single or maybe a few different odorants? Or do you have like tens of thousands of receptor neurons? And then like this one responds to this odorant and this cell mm. responds to this other odorant. And it's is it divided up like that? Or does everybody respond to everything? Yeah. And what's kind of interesting about that, that's a great question, is that some sensory receptor cells respond only to one type of chemical. 
Others will respond to multiple types of chemicals, but do so, they kind of have a preference. So Mm. they'll respond with uh, more action potentials to one type of chemical, and they'll respond to some of the other chemicals, but to a lesser degree. Mm. So yeah, so it's, it's kind of a mix. Okay. So, okay. So I feel like I I have a good grasp of how smell works then. And then you kind of describe these three possible mechanisms. It, It seems like there are a lot of points of possible failure in how the sense of smell can be disrupted. Right. And so what we have just discussed right here is just the sensory neurons. So Mm. your neurons and their signaling to the brain, they have a lot of helpers around them, just like you're a taste bud on your tongue. And again, there's sensory cells in those little taste buds that also pick up chemical, but it's the chemicals that you're putting in your mouth. Mm. And those in a very similar fashion, they're going to different regions of the brain and all that, but they're sending signals about the things that we taste or the chemicals that we put in our mouth. So just like our taste buds, our little sensory cells with their little finger-like projections are surrounded by support cells. They're surrounded by cells that secrete the mucus that we all get familiar with when we have a bad cold, but those cells are creating mucus all the time, just at levels that we don't worry about or bother with. And those support the finger-like extensions. That what mucus, do you mean by support? Well, so we wouldn't want those little finger-like extensions just to be in really dry conditions. So Mm. they need, they're going to need electrolytes around them. They're going to need some nutrients around them. So these cells have electrical signaling. That's what the action potentials are. And so they need to be bathed in the right conditions of sodium and potassium and chloride and all of those ions that help support the cell inside and outside, but outside the cell, they're going to need you know, fluid around them with the right types of ions and electrolytes and nutrients. Okay. So there are cells that sit around them and provide that source of nutrient and electrolyte environment. So it sounds like then these neurons wouldn't be able to do their job appropriately if it weren't for their support structure provided by their neighboring cells. Yeah. So the neighboring Mm -hmm. cells provide support for these sensory cells. One of the supporting cells names, and I don't know who got to name it, but I think it's kind of a fun word is sustentacular cells. Those are, that's the name of (laughs) the supporting cells, sustentacular. And they're, they're the ones that really provide the electrolytes and nutrients for these cells. And then interestingly, There are also a cell type that they're called a basal cell, and these are stem cells. Hmm. So they can regenerate and they will become sensory neurons. So the reason we have this in place is that these little finger-like extensions, these sensory cells, they're out there in our nasal cavity and they're really vulnerable to toxins, pollutants, microorganisms that may get up into our nasal cavity. Mm -hmm. And 
And if they get infected or damaged, they're gone. So you can imagine if we couldn't regenerate those, Hmm. then we may lose our sense of smell early in life. So these basal cells, they're stem cells, and they become these sensory neurons. Hmm. So, so, when they, so when a basal cell divides, does like one of them go on and mature into the sensory neuron and then one of them sort of retains that undifferentiated state? Is that kind of yes, what's going on? That's okay. right. So we have a degeneration, regeneration process going on in our nasal cavity way up there. Hmm. Just like you kind of regenerate your skin, you regenerate bone. It's very common. It but is I, kind of interesting because these are neurons. Yeah, I was just thinking um, that, that I'm used right. to thinking about epithelial cells regenerating themselves all mm-hmm. the time. Like right. every time I brush off some skin from the surface of my skin, it, you know, no big deal, but right. huh, interesting. Right. So this is a place where we do get some regeneration of sensory cells or neurons. Yeah. Hmm. But so yeah. if they, if they can regenerate, then I thought that old people smelled worse. I thought... <laughs> I thought that old people lost some of their senses of smell. Yes. And that is true. Okay. Um, So as we age, we lose, just like we lose many of our other senses, we do lose our sense of smell. And there are a number of disease states, uh, neurological diseases, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, schizophrenia, all of those neurological diseases are associated with loss of smell or reduced Mm. smell. So that is a process. And one of the things that is kind of been a silver lining or a good thing about COVID is it has caused researchers to now really look into smell Mm. and figure out what's going on. And that will help us in our treatment and our understanding for some of these other diseases. Mm-hmm. So that's a plus. So they can regenerate, but not very quickly or or not very... Um, you know what? So, so what's interesting here is most people, like I said earlier, can reestablish their sense of smell within about four to six weeks. And I think some people even say, you know, by two weeks, it was back. So they do regenerate pretty rapidly, you know, mm-hmm. within four to six weeks. Mm-hmm. But then as you age, do those basal cells come yeah, less capable? I of- don't, honestly, I do not know where the problem lies. So it could be at the sensory receptors. It could mm. be an issue of the brain mm. as mm. well. So okay. that piece, I'm sure there's some research on that, but I don't know that research, mm. okay. but yeah, it could be kind of anywhere along the pathway. Okay. So then yeah. specifically, what is it that COVID is doing then? Yeah. That's making so, people lose their sense of smell. Right. We know that it's not mucus, a buildup of mucus has okay. we talked about earlier. And then also, as I spoke about earlier, people were pretty afraid that this could be due to direct infection of the virus of these sensory cells. There are a number of different viruses that do affect neurons and and actually can get in in these sensory types of cells. And in fact, the olfactory system is, is kind of vulnerable to it. And there are things like influenza A can get in there. There's a number of different viruses that actually can cause 
neurological symptoms and, and damage by affecting our olfactory or these sensory receptor cells. Other ones that people may be more familiar with are herpes, the chickenpox virus. Those affect neurons and they can, you know, like the chickenpox can come back as shingles because that virus sits latent in neurons. Polio is one that affects motor neurons, rabies as well. So there was a big fear that this virus was affecting our neurons. And that's just so much more detrimental can cause, you know, things like meningitis and inflammation of the brain. So one of the first things that they needed to do to figure out what was going on is to see whether or not these sensory receptor cells had the protein that the virus binds to, to gain entry into the cell, as Chad was talking about earlier. Fortunately, what they discovered is that the sensory receptor cells with their little finger-like projections do not have that protein. So Mm. the virus cannot gain entry into those sensory receptor cells. Mm. So that was really great news because that Mm. meant that we didn't have to worry about this being a point of entry into the nervous system for this virus and then causing havoc. So what is it about the nervous system I mean, you mentioned some diseases like chicken pox and herpes and things like that, that you said get into the nervous system and those can come back and come back and come back, right? Right. So what is it about these cells that lets that happen or or why is that so detrimental specifically to them? Right. And so as long as these viruses can stay at that sensory, you know, more peripheral site, like people get herpes sores like on their lips okay. or shingles follows sensory neurons that innervate different areas of the skin. So you can get it and there's something called dermatomes and that's where different sensory neurons innervate and then they send signals back up to the brain. And if they're in those sensory neurons, they show up on your skin and they're very, they're, it's very characteristic where the dermatomes are and where you'll get certain infections. So if they stay out there in the periphery, that's fine. You're just going to have skin infections, which can be very painful. And you can have a lot of soreness and pain associated with that, but you're not necessarily having inflammation of the brain like you would with something like meningitis. Mm. Do they reside in the body for so long, like years and years and years, possibly never truly getting cleared because they specifically are in neurons or types of cells that are also long lived within the body? Yeah, they're within neurons. Since they're inside those cells, your immune system doesn't know they're there. Mm. Okay, so I'm getting I'm starting to get the picture of why that was such a concern that there were these potential neurological symptoms. So maybe I'm sort of glad I didn't know at the moment (laughs) that there was like, because I I, this is new to me. And so I, I didn't know that I perhaps at a time should have been worried that, oh my gosh, it looks like, is this virus one of those viruses that's going to hang out in our neurons and sort of come back and come back and come back again, because right. we never truly get rid of it. And or so what, what I feel like you're migrate saying is up that, into the brain too, right, and then right. cause mm. grave infection there. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so I feel like mm-hmm. what you're saying is that turned out not to be the case, fortunately. Right. So that means it must right. be impinging on our sense of smell some other way. 
Yes. And so what they did find, so our sensory receptor cells did not have the protein, but those sustentacular cells did. Ah, okay. So these supporting cells that sit next to our sensory neurons with their little finger light projections can be infected by the COVID virus. Hmm. And what will happen then, they will initiate an immune response. So we'll get molecules coming to the site saying, hey, there's an infection here. We've got to take care of it. The supporting cells release all kinds of molecules to bring in other cells, other molecules to fight off this infection. Hmm. So in the process of that, these other molecules that are released from the supporting cells when there's been an infection, then send a signal, they signal the sensory receptor cells, and that causes some cell signaling, some signaling inside the sensory receptor cells, and it causes disorganization of the DNA inside those cells. Then what happens is those cells no longer produce the proteins that we need for the odorants to bind to. So we Mm. get what's called downregulation of the proteins in the cell membrane of the finger-like extensions. They can no longer bind the odorants. So either we don't have them, enough of them, or they're just not signaling correctly. Hmm. Now you have odorants coming in. You don't have those finger light projections on those cells and you can't smell anything. Those cells aren't Hmm. there until we get the basal cells, those stem cells to regenerate and provide us with those sensory receptor cells again. Okay. So what happens then is so we have to kind of wait for those cells to die off and we regenerate new cells and then we get our sense of smell back. Hmm. If you were to like shrink yourself down small enough so that you could walk around up in somebody's nasal passage and looked at the surface of an individual who has lost their sense of smell due to COVID and an individual who has not, I'm guessing that the surface of those finger-like projections on the person who's lost their sense of smell would be like, I guess, kind of more smooth and be lacking those receptor molecules sticking out in, in yeah. the binding sites. Right. They they probably just have fewer binding sites. The finger-like extensions would still be there. Uh-huh. But then um, on the surface of those. On the surface, it's like you wouldn't have as many doors to knock on. Yeah, that's a good, mm. that's a good analogy. Not, you wouldn't have as many yeah. doors to knock on, whereas. To knock on, or if you're knocking on the door that's there, it's not responding. No one's it's... open it for you exactly so it's it's one of those situations where it's not really the it's not the disease itself it's trying to fix the disease is like a bull in a china shop that these cells are actually doing the damage trying to stop the invaders but they're also doing some an unintended consequence of the immune response is that it also mucks up the ability of the neuron to produce the appropriate surface molecules, which makes them non-functional. Right. So then that is a permanent issue for that particular neuron cell. Right. And so you just have to wait for that to die off and then replace it. Yeah, wait for it to die off. Or there's the idea that maybe 
you know, over time, it can get its machinery back working, you know, back to work, and it can start producing functional proteins Mm. that it can put on its cell surface to bind the odorants. And I think one thing that was really interesting about this paper is they were able to discover how fragile this DNA was. And so that could be some of the reasons that we have problems with other diseases or pollutants that maybe it's this change in in the function of the DNA and these sensory cells and their lack of ability to make these proteins so that the odorants can bind. Well, cool. I learned a lot. Yeah. Thanks, Sarah. You're welcome. This episode was recorded on the beautiful campus of Linfield University. Rodi Ortega wrote our theme music. If you like this episode or others like it, you should subscribe to the podcast, Sarah. While there, you should leave a comment and a rating, and that'll help other people find our podcast. If you have ideas for future episodes, email us at crisscrossingsci at gmail.com. All one word, all lowercase. Or just hit us up on Facebook. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.